The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our senior pastor, Dr. Rogers, retired at the end of February after 24 years of faithful ministry. We are very thankful for his diligent and godly leadership. And until the next senior pastor is installed, the associates here at Westminster, the associate pastors, will share the pulpit. In his final sermon... Dr. Rogers pointed to a plaque that he had installed in this pulpit that many of you didn't know about. It's from John chapter 12, verse 21. And it says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And it reflects our continued purpose at Westminster. We will continue to show you Jesus. And so we pick up where Dr. Rogers left off seeking to show you, Jesus, that we all may know Him and serve Him and love Him all the more. This morning, we start in the book of Hebrews. Now, whenever we introduce a new book, it's usually helpful to first step back and try to get a big picture. And so that's what I want to do first, is to give you the big big picture before we focus in on the introduction in the first few verses. The purpose of Hebrews is twofold. First, to elevate Jesus as superior. And second, to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite hardship and persecution. And when you read the letter, throughout the letter of Hebrews, the writer warns the readers to pay close attention because in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, which is still being written, If we don't pay careful attention, we're in danger of drifting away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 1 and 2, the writer elevates Jesus as superior to the angels and to all the messengers in the Old Testament that wrote the Torah. Because Jesus is not simply a messenger who brings God's word, he is God's word. And the warning is clear. Reject Jesus and you reject the God of the Old Testament because all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Jesus is held as superior to Moses because he's not simply a servant in God's house, rather he is the son over God's house. And as the better Moses, Jesus brings us into a better promised land. And so the warning again is clear. If you reject Jesus, you cannot inherit the ultimate promised land of a new creation a new heaven and a new earth. And then in verses 5 through 7, Jesus is lifted up as the superior priest, an eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek, because Jesus is superior. He ever lives to mediate between God and his people. And so the warning is if you reject Jesus, 
You reject the only mediator able to reconcile you to God. In chapters 8 through 10, Jesus is lifted up as superior in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is the perfect, once and for all, sacrifice for sin. And so the warning is, is if you reject Jesus, you reject God's payment for sin. And therefore, you must pay that debt yourself. And then in the final chapters, 11 through 13, the writer encourages all of us to identify with those who are of the one true faith, who've gone before as witnesses. And the, re- and the writer bids us to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and to run with perseverance the race set before us by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So Hebrews beautifully shows how all of the Old Testament points to Jesus as a better word, as a better Moses, as a better priest, and as a better sacrifice so that the readers won't drift back to those lesser things. So now that I've painted an outline of the book in broad brushstrokes, let us turn to the beginning of Hebrews and focus the rest of our time this morning in the introduction, the first three verses. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. If not, please turn to the uh, Bible in the pew, page 1001. This is God's Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the introduction, the the writer plants the central idea that he will develop through the rest of the letter. The supremacy of Jesus. First, the supremacy of Jesus' revelation. Second, the supremacy of his reign. And third, the supremacy of his redemption. The three R's of our salvation. First, the supremacy of Jesus' revelation. Verse 1 clarifies how God has spoken over time, but most recently through the Son. Notice how God has spoken over time. In verse 1, God has spoken to our fathers. The preposition our fathers is speaking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The original audience is Jewish, so they would have been very familiar with the Old Testament, thus the name of the book, which is the letter to the Hebrews. Now God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. Excuse me. Notice the plural. Prophets meaning many. And notice when. This started long ago. It happened many times with succeeding generations. And notice that God spoke in many ways. To the patriarchs, through angelic messengers and visions and dreams. Even at one point, God's communication gets strangely physical in a wrestling match with Jacob. But God also spoke through Moses at the burning bush and at Mount Sinai and in the wilderness. He provided, speaking through miracles and bread from heaven. 
God spoke through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he revealed himself through the prophets. Elijah and Elisha, raining down, calling down fire from heaven, raising the dead, Daniel, closing the mouths of lions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, surviving the fiery furnace, on and on and on. What does this mean? The God of the Bible has been revealing himself and speaking for quite some time. He is not silent, and he has not been silent. In fact, he's been quite creative in his communication. He's spoken loudly, so loudly, that the common response when he speaks is fear, whether it's Sinai or in exile in Chaldea. And God was not afraid to repeat himself when people didn't seem to be listening. How does this apply? If God really has been speaking loudly and creatively and repetitively for a long time in many ways, have you ever heard him? That's for some of you here. Maybe you haven't ever heard him. And if not, why not? I pray that you hear him this morning. But there's another question that must be asked. Are you willing to hear him? And before you answer that question too quickly, think about it honestly. A God who simply winds up the universe and lets it go, but who never intervenes to speak, offers at least one apparent advantage, or at least the convenience. You don't have to bother with him because he's obviously not that bothered or interested in you. But what if God does bother? What if God is interested? What if God speaks and actually speaks a whole lot? That changes things quite drastically, doesn't it? If God speaks, then God cares. God cares to engage us. It means he wants authentic, real relationship with us. And as with any authentic relationship, God wants to be known accurately. He wants to be known for who he really is. He wants to be heard, understood, and engaged with personally. So much so that he's spoken most recently by his son. Now that the text says, in these last days. But that phrase, in these last days, simply means recently. For From the perspective of the writer of Hebrews, it was recent. Keep in mind, Hebrews was written before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. So this was written while many, if not most, or Nearly all the witnesses who saw Jesus, saw his life, his miracles, his teaching, his death and resurrection, they were still alive. This is early. This is a reliable historical witness we have here in Hebrews. But how is the Son described? Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Two images describe the Son. First, he's the radiance of the glory of God. That's, that's a key phrase. Jesus is the radiance, not the reflection of God's glory. By way of illustration, consider the difference between the sun and the moon. The sun radiates. It radiates light and heat where the moon reflects. It reflects the light and heat of the sun. Jesus radiates God's glory just as the sun radiates light and heat. Jesus is the source of God's glory. All glory and power and might that our gods flow from Him. Now, no other human being is described this way. 
Yes, Genesis describes humans as made in the image of God, but we only reflect God's glory like the moon. But Jesus, his son, is is altogether different. He has an altogether different glory. He radiates God's glory from the inside out. He is the source of God's glory. The glory of Jesus is indistinguishable from the glory of God. In the most vivid way possible, the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is being identified as fully divine, fully God. And so he nails the point home with another image in verse 3. The Son is the exact imprint of his nature. Now notice the precision of the words here. Exact imprint of God's nature. Not similar to some of the characteristics of God. Not sharing in a part of Godishness. Rather, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Like a signet ring pressed into wax, leaving an exact imprint, Jesus is God pressed into human flesh. What does this mean? Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's glory. He radiates God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Before Jesus God spoke indirectly through messengers. But now God has spoken directly by His Son. God has packaged Himself and come near. He has gotten on our level and become fully human. So how does this apply? Well, First, we must actively listen to Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is bending over backwards to be known. So we should listen. In the cosmic game of hide and seek, we wrongly assume that God is the one hiding and we're the one seeking. We say to ourselves, if only God would show himself to us, prove himself. Or we say, if God would at least be more clear, then I might believe in him or I might trust him. But the writer of Hebrews testifies that God has spoken God has spoken clearly, consistently, loudly for a long, long time. And in fact, God's clarity was the problem for the prophets. It's what got the prophets in trouble. And it was Jesus' miracles that threatened the Sanhedrin, which led to his crucifixion. See, God has shown himself. But people still refuse to believe. And see, while the good news that God has spoken should be welcome, very welcome, it often proves to many too much of an interruption. Too much of an interruption to their agenda, their personal agenda, their political agenda, their comfort, their autonomy, their, their perceived right of self-determination to, how, to live however they want. Here's a question. If you continually fail to hear the voice of God in any life-changing way, would you be willing to at least consider it may be because you're not listening very well? So we all know what inactive, inactive listening looks like, especially the parents among us. Mom announces, dinner in five minutes, kids. A couple minutes later, hey, in two minutes, kids, we're going to be eating, wash up. Many minutes pass and only a few show up at the table. Some members are suspiciously absent, and that won't do. So what mom does is she chases down the steps, or she gets dad in the game. 
Why haven't you come to the table? Now, do you care to hazard a guess on what the most common excuse for not coming to the table on time is? I was busy and I did not hear you. Moms and dads, do you find that response at all believable? But children are not the only ones susceptible to selective hearing. I've been late to the dinner table more times than once. I add that so you don't think I'm just, I don't want you judging my kids. See, we're all capable of making excuses, especially when we don't want to be interrupted. When we don't want to be held responsible for what we should have heard. We do it with each other and we do it with God. The question is, will you stop looking for excuses and instead actively listen and examine how God has spoken? Because He has. In His written Word and in His living Word, He came Himself in the person of Jesus. And as you listen, you may discover a God who is and who speaks. And once you're willing to listen, this is the second application, be willing to embrace the mystery Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I just told you Jesus is fully God and fully human. And you're thinking, how can that be? How can anyone still believe that in our modern age? And yet, if you actively listen to the historical record, this will prove to be the most responsible conclusion that you can come to. As you listen to the witnesses who actually heard him and saw him and touched him and saw him risen from the dead. And this has been affirmed by the church as central as a central doctrine of the church. And you may be thinking, but how can that be? Fully God, fully human. In my college days in physics lab, we did an experiment that shows us light functions as both a particle and a wave. Both are true at the same time. How can that be? If you know anything about physics, you'd be asking that question because the properties of a particle and a wave appear mutually exclusive from our limited perspective. And we even demonstrate in the lab that a single photon goes through two separate slits in a box at the same time, interferes with itself in a wave-like manner, and then emerges from the slits, making a single mark on a plate in a particle-like manner. And my mind was blown away from this. How can this be? How can a single particle be in two places at one time, even though it can be measured to have a single fixed location in time and space? And the answer I got back from my professor was not, well, Dave, choose whichever of light's property works for you. Just go with the one that makes sense. See, if the idea of light as a particle confuses you, Good scientists don't ignore it. That would be ridiculous. That's what the evidence shows. We may not understand it. It's a mystery. Dr. Christopher Baird writes, if you find quantum particle wave, a quantum particle wave hard to visualize, don't let this difficulty tempt you to dismiss quantum theory as nonsense. Quantum theory has been experimentally verified in hundreds of laboratories for almost a century now. I think God gives us these mysteries in nature, these paradoxes, these conundrums, such as the quantum theory of light to remind us that his ways are higher than ours. God's ways don't contradict. We just might not grasp them. The radiance 
of the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. Our second point is we not only see the supremacy of Jesus in his revelation, but in his reign over creation. The text shows Jesus supremely ruling over creation, past, present, and future. Look at verse 2. He reigns over a future new creation, but in the last days God has spoken us to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. As Son, Jesus is heir. An heir receives his full inheritance, not presently, but in the future. This means Jesus has not yet received all that he will receive. He reigns presently in a glorious state, but more glory is coming for Jesus. He will reign most glorious only after all things are handed over to him by the Father. And some things have not yet been handed over to him in full. Well, how do I mean? Well, take death, for example. As long as death exists, as long as it's present in any form, decay, corruption, defilement, rot, death is air, wherever death lingers. And all that belongs to life will eventually be given over to death. And so for now, death still inherits. Physical death will inherit you and me and all of us. But the really good news is that God has already appointed Jesus as the future heir of all things. So on some future day, known only to God the Father, Jesus will fully, completely, totally inherit all things in a new creation. As the Apostle Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The son whom God appointed heir will rule most gloriously in an incorruptible future when the dead in Christ are raised, not as disembodied souls, but with new bodies in a new creation. Jesus rules most gloriously in the future. And for those of you who suffer with pain, and disease, and handicap. Isn't this good news that God cares about your body and will redeem it? So that you can enjoy it for how He created it to be for eternity. Jesus rules most gloriously in the future. Secondly, Jesus rules from eternity past as Creator. Verse 2 again. He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Notice the writer does not merely say for whom he created the world, but through whom he created the world. It's one thing for God to say that he created the universe for the Son. We can easily comprehend such a thing. I'm constantly creating things for my sons. I create lunch. I create a home. I create a college savings account. Right? But that's not what the writer's saying. He's saying God created through the Son. This is a radical reality that God created all things that are through the Son. That means the Son shares in the nature of God as creator. God is creator of all things. Jesus is creator of all things. He has the same power, same wisdom, same essence. Dr. Liam Gallagher said it this way. There is a creator and there are things that are created. God is creator. Everything else is created or creaturely. Jesus falls into the category of creator and everything else 
falls into the category of creation. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, God created all things out of nothing, simply by the power of His Word. And the disciple John, who knew Jesus best, echoes the words of Genesis when he's describing his memory of Jesus. He says this, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning there was nothing, only God. Yet Jesus was there because Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal, self-existing. He's the uncreated Creator. But it even gets more boggling than that. Not only does Jesus reign from eternity past as the uncreated first cause of the universe, Jesus is the ever-present sustainer of the cosmos. He reigns presently. Look at verse 3b. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus remains intimately involved in running things. Jesus is sustaining your heartbeat right now. You have no control over your heartbeat, but Jesus does. And he will sustain it as long as it pleases him to do so. Your life was created by him and it's sustained by him. Remarkably, Jesus rules every fiber of your being, literally, whether you know it or not. And he does so by the power of his word. Jesus upholds the earth's rotation, keeping it steady at one rotation every 24 hours. He upholds gravity, the electromagnetic force, the strong and weak nuclear force. He keeps light moving at a constant speed. It's very fast, like 186,000 miles a second. And Jesus is sustaining it. Now, if you've ever read philosophy, you may have already discovered that the regularity of nature eludes rational explanation. Recognizing it is one thing, but explaining why it is so and why should we expect it to continue to be so, they're two very different things. And philosophers of science find the regularity of the material world both striking and inexplicable. Popular atheists and agnostics David Hume and Bertrand Russell were very troubled by the regularity of nature. They found no reason why the universe should run according to certain laws, that water should boil tomorrow at the same temperature it boils at today. Why is it that the universe isn't more chaotic and unstable with constant fluctuation? Why are there such finely tuned laws? Why such consistency across the universe? And Russell and Hume were very bothered by this, for they could not give any rational justification for assuming the regularity of nature would continue. And like all of us, they had to take it on faith. But see, like a master craftsman, God reveals himself non-verbally. Through what he has made, through creation and providence, design and regularity. The design of creation reveals God's beauty and skill and power. And the regularity of the universe, his provident rule, his order, his constancy, and his faithfulness. And Hebrews clarifies God's nonverbal communication through creation and providence has gone verbal and come close so that we can know the mind and heart of this God of the universe. Because his name is Jesus. And he has come close. Jesus reigns over all creation, past, present, and future. So how does this apply? Worship him. Bow down Stand in awe. 
Don't do the intellectually dishonest thing by saying he claimed only to be a good moral teacher. He did not. He claimed to be God himself. And so worship him or dismiss him. But there's another application of Jesus being over all creation, and that is, if you are a follower of Christ, don't over-spiritualize your Christian walk. Jesus' salvation is not limited to spiritual benefits. He created a material universe, He sustains it, and He will renew it in glory. Our God cares about the material world and physical needs. That's why Jesus became flesh. He came to heal all that was sick and broken. And He made a good start of it. And he's left his people to continue his work as his hands and his feet. And so we should care about physical reality. And if you're a scientist or a doctor or a nurse, Jesus gives you the best motive for being most diligent, most careful, and persevere best at your career. But neither is Jesus' lordship limited to spiritual authority. He has full authority over body and soul. Sex and gender were his idea from the beginning. He created us as male and female. And so he gets to decide how we express it in singleness and in marriage. And he sustains our gender no matter how much we push against it or how much we feel uncomfortable with it. He has written male and female into our very bones, into our DNA. And if we reject this, we reject his beauty. Jesus is supreme ruler over creation, sustainer of it. And so, don't under-spiritualize, don't over-spiritualize. We under-spiritualize it by thinking that his authority is somehow disrupted by the brokenness of the physical reality. But he reigns over all brokenness. Take, for example, if Jesus upholds the universe by the power of his word, he sustains our ability to enjoy it all with our eyes, with our ears, with our sense of taste and touch. And he remains sovereign even as we lose our ability to enjoy sight and sound and taste as we lose our health. He rules over the aging process, reminding us that life is not our final home, that we were made for another. He rules sovereignly over our brokenness that nothing happens apart from him allowing it. And he not only allowed sinful men to crucify him, he allowed evil things, he allows evil things to happen to innocent people all the time. And as with his own cross, he proves that no broken thing, no horrible thing, no terrible, defiling, sinful, damaging thing is beyond his power to heal and to redeem. And he will providentially use all those things in the midst of physical brokenness to bring spiritual healing and renewal. So don't under-spiritualize Christianity either. The supremacy of Jesus is total in his revelation in his reign, and last, in his redemption. Look at verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus purifies his people, making them acceptable to God once and for all. See, up to this point, the Son has been described in these three verses is very active. He is the one through whom God created the world. He is the one upholding the universe. Both of these are very active things. But here he moves from action to rest, from making purification for sins, that's very active, to he sat down 
at the right hand of God. That's rest. The writer is clarifying the son's main reason for coming to earth was to make purification for sin. And we know this was his mission because once he accomplished it and he returned to the right hand of the majesty on high, what did he do? He sat down and rested because the job was done. Now throughout Hebrews, the writer will repeat this good news again and again that Jesus purifies you of all your sin, past, present, and future by his once and for all sacrifice. And he repeats it because these Jewish believers long to be pure. But they're finding it hard to trust that what Jesus did by dying on a cross was sufficient to wash away their guilt and their shame. And their concern is understandable because sin makes a mess of everything, a terrible mess, a bigger mess than we realize. It it ruins our relationship with God. It corrupts our relationship with one another. It it even defiles our relationship with ourselves and the creation. It, It contaminates how we live and act and work in creation. See, sin makes a dirty mess of everything. And just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you stop sinning and stop making a mess. Sin is really hard to shake, and so we still fall into it. And so this Christian community, this young Christian community, is wondering, in all the mess, is Jesus' sacrifice for my sin to make me pure really enough? Maybe it isn't. Maybe we need to go back to the old system, the cleanly rituals. And the writer of Hebrews boldly corrects them, saying Jesus' sacrifice was more than enough. There is no more need of sacrifice for sin. Look at Jesus. He lived the perfect life and made the ultimate sacrifice. And then he sat down because his work is finished and no more sacrifice is needed. He sits at the right hand of God because the Father is satisfied. So how does this apply? You can only trust Jesus to cleanse you of your shame and your sin. See, the normal way we deal with sin and shame is we justify ourselves through getting active. And if you're secular, you get busy doing good to salve your conscience. Maybe you volunteer or you donate. And if you're religious, you get more religious. You go to church, temple, synagogue. You say certain prayers. You do certain rituals. You make certain pilgrimages. You eat certain ways. You keep certain feasts. You observe certain days. You give sacrifice, money, time. You get active. You work to scrub away that shameful stain of sin. But Jesus comes to provide a superior redemption. He comes to do what we cannot do as fully God. He alone can bear the full wrath of God. He alone can take it and bear that punishment for every last one of us. And as a man, he can represent us. As fully human, he can stand as our substitute. And so Jesus offers another way for you to cleanse, be cleansed of your sin and shame. Not by getting active, but by resting in the one who made purification for sin once and for all. Jesus did it once and for all. He sits down, indicating it's accepted by the Father. That's the supremacy of Jesus' redemption. And all you and I need to do 
is to receive it. Rest in it. It's yours for the taking. Jesus' blood is the only cleansing agent that can get in the nooks and crannies of your heart into those shameful places that you think can never be healed. And He can clean it. Let us pray. God, thank You for Jesus. That's a huge understatement. For Jesus is truly supreme. He is the ultimate revelation of God. Showing us what You are like. And He reigns supremely as Creator and sustainer, and heir of a most glorious future. And He redeems, fully redeems, so that we might know the hope of being cleansed of our sin. Oh God, thank You for Jesus, that He did what we could not do. Teach us how to rest in it. How to receive it. I pray for anyone here this morning that has not rested or received Draw them to Yourself. Don't let them walk away without feeling interrupted. Continue to pursue them until they turn and yield and rest. For You alone are the One that gives what we seek. In Jesus' name, Amen.